0: Hello, welcome to Praying the Word of God. My name is Tay and I'm here to pray through the Word of God with you. Once again, I hope this message finds you well. I pray you're in good spirits and ready to sit with me in this moment to give a little time towards seeking God's face through devotion and prayer. So, like many teenagers, Graduating high school was a very important milestone for me and going to college was even more important. You know, I can remember going to my mother and telling her that I really wanted to go to college and she told me that she had brought me as far as she could take me. She told me that she knew it was possible for me to get into college she just didn't know how to get me there you know my mother was a single parent of five children so of course she didn't have any money for me to go to college and she didn't know of any resources that could help me at that time so she encouraged me to go talk to my guidance counselor and I went to my guidance counselor to see if she could lead me in the right direction. And unfortunately, my guidance counselor told me that college wasn't for me. And she let me know that if I didn't have any money, I couldn't even attend college anyways. So I asked her if she could at least see if there were any grants or scholarships that I could apply for, something that could help me. And without her even budging to look through any of the resources I seen laying around her office, she told me there was no scholarships available for me either. But instead, she encouraged me to pick up a trade once I graduate. So as my senior year grew to a close, you know, I really began to panic because I felt like going to college was my only way out of a chaotic and impoverished environment. I really felt like my world was, you know, caving in at that time. Because outside of college, I didn't have much of anything working for me, quite frankly. And I didn't think that I had the skills that I needed to continue to survive in the neighborhood that I lived in, you know, so I was desperate for a way out and no one but my mom knew about the hurt I was feeling about my crush dream of not being able to go to college. So one day in school, I just broke down, you know, I was having a really rough time. I was, you know, I couldn't focus on my work. I was just having a hard time going from one class to another, knowing that I didn't know what my outcome would be once I graduated. And I'll never forget this one time when I buried my head in my locker and I just began to cry. You know, I felt so defeated and helpless. I had no resources, no influence, and I I didn't even have any power of my own to change my situation. So... One day when I was sitting with a teacher, Miss Donna Moore, I will never forget her name. She asked me what was wrong. Because obviously by the look on my face, I'm sure she could tell that something was perplexing me. So after she asked me the question, I told her, I can't go to college. Then I burst into tears. She asked me why, and I told her, my guidance counselor told me it's because I have no money and there are no scholarships that I qualified for. And after having a long, heartfelt talk with Ms. Moore, you know, she encouraged me and told me to never again let anyone else decide my future for me. So the following week or so, my mother allowed me to go with Miss Moore to a university about 20 minutes outside of my hometown And when we got there, she introduced me to a few people in high places who were also her friends. She told them that if that was my school of choice to look after me and to make sure that I got in with ease. Now, she didn't mean take care of me in the sense to let me cheat my way through or anything like that. She just knew that way too often, students like me were always shunned away from seeking a higher education by their school guidance counselor. And she wanted to make sure that I had people supporting me wherever I went. So shortly after that, she connected me to a program at another university that was um, designed to help students in their last year of school to successfully transition into college. And the director was also her friend and she also asked him to look after me if I chose to attend that university but you know her guiding me was just a start upon my graduation my school had an award ceremony for all seniors now I didn't think anything of it. I knew I wasn't receiving an award, so I didn't tell my mom about it. You know, I was just going with the flow. It was just another day in school for me. And, you know, even though my guidance counselor told me there were no monies available to me, I was awarded with at least five different scholarships for college that I can remember that I never even applied for. My heart swelled up with so much gratitude. And I remember, you know, tears just pouring down my eyes every single time they called my name up to receive an award. You know, as Miss Moore was somewhere along the sidelines cheering me on, and you know, I couldn't help but to think that Miss Moore had everything to do with it. Now, I shared this story with you because as I look back at that season in my life, you know, I was in a pretty desperate place. Going to college wasn't just something to do for me, but I seen it as an opportunity that would help me get away from my chaotic environment. However, I just didn't have what I needed to get there on my own. On my own, I didn't have the power to make my guidance counselor help me. I didn't have any influence for anyone to let me into college. But I did have access to someone who was connected to everything I needed. And that was Miss Moore. And you know, this reminded me of a story found in the book of Esther. Now, typically... When we read the book of Esther, we tend to focus on the role she played in saving the Jewish nation from annihilation. But this story keeps coming to my mind, not just because of her influential role in saving the Jewish people, but also because of the roles many other people who were connected to her played. And I also think that this story is just a perfect example of where we are now. You know, this nation, even the whole world, has been shaken to its core. From COVID-19, from everyone being quarantined, to the many heinous crimes committed right before our eyes, to the exposing of unfair systems driven by, you know, systematic inequality and oppression. And, you know, we are now expected to go back out into the world. With no complete resolve. And the question I keep asking myself is how do I want to show back up? What role do I play in helping to make a difference? What influences, if any, do I have in helping to make lasting change? You know, can I even go back to a life that was normal for me in the midst of all the peril that's still going on around me. And I started to think about my connections. I started to think about how I was positioned in relation to others, about my influences, and about my commitment to God in all of it. So in Esther chapter 2, we find that Hadassah, also known as Esther, married King Xerxes and transitioned into her new role as queen. However, because Esther was new to her position as queen, her influence with the king, nor anyone for that matter, was not strong enough. And therefore, her relative Mordecai, who was a righteous and wise man, didn't think it was safe nor wise to reveal her identity as a Jewish woman unless she needed to and until she earned the right to be heard. You know, because although Queen Esther didn't know at that time, sometime later, she would find out that earning her right to be heard would play a vital role on the influence with her husband and in the protection of her people you see because there was a powerful official he was second in command by the name of Haman and you know Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites who were ancient enemies of the Jewish people and Haman was a perfect example of someone who loved to use his power and influence, not for the benefit of others, but to control and strike fear into those who were under his authority, especially towards people he hated, like the Jewish people. And one of his perks of being the highest official to the king was that <clears throat> excuse me, anyone who entered his presence, They had to bow down before him. So whenever he walked past, other officials and and regular citizens, they all knew to bow down in reverence to him. Then one day, the palace officials at the king's gate noticed that Mordecai, the queen's husband, I'm sorry, the queen Esther's cousin, never kneeled as Haman walked by. So the palace officials went to Haman and told him that not only is there a man who refused to bow down in your presence, but he's a Jewish man. So when Haman was told that Mordecai would not bow down, he was furious. Haman knew that Mordecai's refusal to kneel to him came from his faith and his allegiance in God because he was a Jewish man. But when he learned that he was a Jewish man, he hated him even more. And he hated the Jewish people even more. So he decided that laying hands on Mordecai alone wasn't going to be enough. So he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews. But Mordecai's courage to honor God and do what was right put a whole nation at risk. So, you know, I want to know how would that make you feel? When you see someone getting shunned or threatened or even silenced for upholding a godly standard, do you use that as an example of what not to do? Would you try to get as far away from that person as possible so that you won't receive the same fate? You know, I think that's something for all of us to think about. Because although we're good at praising our heroes after the victory is won, we know that what Mordecai did was not an easy thing to do. But you can also tell that Mordecai, you know, wasn't purposely refusing to bow down just to prove a point. His actions simply came from a lifestyle he'd always lived. You know, I personally really don't think Mordecai purposely determined in his heart to do what was unpopular just to find himself standing alone. His whole life had always centered around doing what was right in the sight of his God. And truth is, sometimes that can lead to persecution, right? Now, if we keep reading, we find that after some time had passed, Haman went to King Xerxes and cleverly told him, hey, there's a particular scattered and dispersed people in all the provinces of your kingdom. And, you know, their laws are different from all other people. And, you know, they don't even keep your law. And I don't think it's fitting for you to let them remain. So if it pleases you, the king, let a decree be written that they all be destroyed. Now, needless to say, the king trusted Haman's words. Therefore, he agreed. That the people Haman was referring to were a potential threat and they needed to be destroyed. So he allowed Haman to carry out this plan. And as a result, letters were sent out into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women all in one day and to plunder their possessions. And when we think it stops there, this document was supposed to be issued as law in every province and published for everyone to see so they could be ready. For that day. now let's look at how disconnected the king was to the people he governed. Scripture says that after the decree was made, King Xerxes and his second chief in command, Haman sat down to drink right after making the decree, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. We see right here that the king was so far removed from his people's problems that he knowingly put a whole nation that was under his government in the position to be wiped out all in one day. Yet he was so unbothered that he was able to enjoy his drink with the very man who planned to carry it out. And you know, I don't think it was that the king was a vicious man. He just wasn't connected to all the people he governed. And oftentimes, the one who gets the attention of those in power are not always the ones who need it, but it's the ones who are closest to the people in power, whether good or evil. But when leaders are so far removed from the people they serve, they're often unaware of the issues their people are facing until it turns into a problem so huge It can't be ignored. Now, after the decree was issued, we see the whole nation, you know, was distraught. Scripture says that in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews. They were fasting, they were weeping, wailing, and many of the people lay in sackcloth and ashes. You know, I can't help but to imagine that all the weeping and the loud wailing and laying out in the middle of the roads in sackcloth and ashes had to have gotten the attention of the other citizens who weren't being affected. And as I studied this, I couldn't help but to wonder what role did the citizens who were protected played because I believe we all play a role in the world that we live in. While their lives remained untouched, did they ignore the cries of their Jewish neighbors and go about their own way? You know, everyone had to have seen that the Jewish people were deeply sorrowful as they were forced to hand over their lives all in the name of hate. Yet there remained one man whose godly life always spoke for itself through the counseling of Queen Esther through the loyalty he had for the king, and through the refusal of kneeling to another god. And that man is Mordecai. Scripture says that when Mordecai learned about the decree and everything that was happening, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes right along with his people. And he went out, Into the middle of the city, and he cried out with a loud, bitter cry. He went as far as his protesting could take him, which was to the front of the king's gate. Mordecai went out into the middle of the city and protested to express his disapproval of the king's decree. And although he could not go past the gate and present himself to the king in a state of mourning, he still remained in the front of that gate because he knew that if he could connect himself with Esther's influence, she would be able to go to the king to make supplication and plead before him on behalf of the Jewish people. Now, because Esther was in a seat of authority, Mordecai could no longer access her the way he used to. There was a protocol to reaching her now. And even this is very important to understand when we study the book of Esther. So, you know, Esther's Maids and eunuchs came and, you know, they had to tell her what Mordecai said about the decree that was made to kill off all the Jews. And, you know, she was deeply distressed. So she wanted to meet Mordecai right away. And so she sent garments for Mordecai to change out of his mourning clothes into something more suitable so he could enter the palace to see her. But something interesting happened. Mordecai refused to take off his clothes of mourning. Now, this was extremely significant to me because by Mordecai refusing to change out of his clothes of mourning into attire suitable to be in the presence of majesty, He was, in essence, saying, tell Esther, I will not join in the pleasures your royalties may offer me. I will not enter a place that will offer temporary peace and comfort for me while they plot against the lives of my people. I refuse to enjoy all that your new life could offer me, Esther, lest I. I get caught up in all of its luxuries and forget the oppression of my people. Because you see, Esther, no matter where or how high I sit, because of who I am, I am married to the struggle. And therefore, I choose to stand outside this gate and I'm going to mourn with my people. But I'm going to remain connected to you. Now, after the eunuch showed Esther the decree and explained everything to her, she immediately, you know, thought about her own life. Because she sent her eunuch back to Mordecai to let him know that something bad could happen to her too. She wanted the eunuch to let him know that her own life could be in danger if she went to the king for any reason without being summoned she let Mordecai know that there's only one law for any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called and that law equals death Except to the one whom the king chooses to hold out his golden scepter. And so she was worried about going to him. Because even she hadn't been summoned to the king, to her husband, in 30 days. So, you know, here we see Esther weighing out her own personal risk of speaking truth to power until Mordecai reminded her that because of who she was I mean who she really was not the queen to a powerful man but the secret of her belonging to the Jewish nation she wouldn't escape Haman's wrath no more Than her Jewish brothers and sisters. Mordecai told Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Right here we see that Mordecai had to remind Esther. That she may not have power. But it was God who put her in a position of great influence. But God did not put her in that position to only save and care for herself. A long enough time had went by where she had finally earned her right to be heard by a powerful king. And the influence she had built with him as her husband needed to be used at a time that mattered most the jewish people could not afford for her to remain silent so esther sent her eunuch to tell mordecai to gather all the jews from the city and fast for her for three days And she commanded her maids to do the same. Then she told Mordecai, I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So in essence, I believe Esther was saying to Mordecai, the man who had advised her her whole life. Once again, Mordecai, I'm trusting your wise counsel, And I'll put my life on the line for my people. But I need the people to fast and pray for me. While I go speak truth to power. In hopes that he will listen to me. And save our people. So as we read we see everyone. Positioning themselves just like Esther asked. And when the time came, she went to the king's court. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she immediately found favor in his sight. The king did not summon her to death. Instead, he held out to Esther the golden scepter of mercy that was in his hand So that she may receive his favor. And you know, I love how this story unfolds because we see Esther. Positioning herself in such a way. That she was seen by the king before she addressed him. Sometimes positioning is everything. Queen Esther knew that although she was the queen, she couldn't just storm into the king's court and demand justice for her people and, you know, frantically screaming at the top of her lungs so that the king could understand her urgency. Now, I don't think Mordecai understood that part. That was the part she had to figure out. But she knew that because King Xerxes was one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, How she positioned herself to be seen first was crucial in her being heard. Now, after Queen Esther gained the attention of the king, up to three times he asked her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? it shall be given you up to half the kingdom so here we see that before she even asked for the protection of her people the king was letting her know that it was already done the answer was already yes all because how she positioned herself before she was heard however you know Queen Esther continued to use that wisdom her cousin Mordecai instilled in her to continue to move with caution on addressing the urgent matter with the king because you see Esther knew that she wasn't the only influence around the king Haman also had great influence with him so Not only did Esther have to position herself to be seen first, but before she allowed herself to be heard, she had to create an environment for the truth to be revealed and for her enemy to be exposed. So she asked the king if he and Haman will come to a banquet she prepared. So they went. And while they were eating and drinking, the king said to Queen Esther again, Okay, what do you really want? He reminded her that whatever her request was, he would still give it to her. But Esther's time had not come to expose Haman and plead for her and her people's lives. So she requested to prepare another banquet and to have Haman attend that as well so she could further explain to the king what this meeting was all about. And again, they agreed. Now, while Esther further positioned herself to be heard by the king, God had positioned Mordecai in the heart of the king. As Esther was doing her part, God had troubled the king's rest, then led him to a record of when Mordecai proved his loyalty to to the king and saved his life. In his record book, he found that Mordecai had once discovered that two of the king's eunuchs and a doorkeeper had plotted to kill the king, then Mordecai reported them to the authorities. So, you know, filled with gratitude for Mordecai, King Xerxes wanted to find a way to honor him. So, you know, as Haman just so happened to walk by, the king asked him, hey, what should I do for a man that I'd like to honor. And of course, because Haman was so full of himself, he automatically assumed the king was referring to him. So, not realizing it was, wasn't about him, he spoke to the king about the kind of honor he would want to receive. And Haman answered the king and he said, for the man you'd like to honor, let a royal robe that you've worn And a horse on which you've written, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to one of your most noble princes, that he may go and array this honored man. Then parade him on a horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Okay, hurry, take the robe and the horse, just as you've suggested, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the king's gate. And leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. You know, when God troubled the king, when God troubled the king's heart for Mordecai, it let me know that God sees and he hears the cries of the righteous, no matter how powerless you feel. Mordecai did not have power within himself to save his people. But his role in staying connected to Esther and living a righteous life unto God played a huge role in the salvation of the Jews. And throughout this whole story, we see this one person remaining consistent in his beliefs and remaining connected to the people. Most of the time when we talk about the book of Esther, you know, like I said, we focus on Esther's role in saving the Jewish nation. But Esther interceded for her people only because Mordecai remained connected to her and she challenged, and I'm sorry, and he challenged her to influence the king for help. Not only that, but It was Mordecai who reminded her that God did not put her in a position of influence for her own personal glorification. Mordecai had to remind Esther that it was God who put her in a position of influence because God knew that a day was coming where he would need someone positioned in a place of authority who cared about the needs of his people. Now imagine if Queen Vashti the king's first wife, would have remained queen? Would she have cared at all about the plot concerning the Jews? You know, I highly doubt that. And that goes back to what I said in an earlier episode about it being difficult for us to care much about the struggles of others the further removed and the less connected we are from them. God needed to place someone in that palace who was directly connected to the pain of his people but also connected to the one who had the power to overrule Haman. Because Queen Vashti wasn't a Jew. I don't think she would have cared enough to seek the king's help for a group of people she wasn't connected with. Now, after the Jewish people fasted for three days and the next banquet was prepared, Esther finally revealed the secret she had been asked to keep regarding her nationality by asking her husband, the king, to spare her life and the life of her people from Haman. And to make a long story medium, filled with shock and fury, King Xerxes ordered. The execution of Haman. And again, he honored Mordecai and he willed all of Haman's property over to Queen Esther. So, what can we learn from this story? How can we apply it to our lives as we move forward in this life? You know, I think that one of the greatest lessons we can learn from this story is, you know, the importance of being connected to one another, no matter what title we carry. And I say this because oftentimes, the work that goes along with having a title or position can leave a gap in our ability to create, to, I'm sorry, to relate to one another so great that those who are positioned above us can't resonate with our needs or those positioned below us feel like they're so far removed from influence and power that the cries of their oppression can't even be heard. The second lesson we can take from this and that we can take with us from the story is the importance of being positioned by God. Many of us wish that we were in better positions than where we are now. And, you know, many of us are in positions that God did not put us in. But when we are in positions that God has placed us in, we stay connected to the heart of God and he's able to use us no matter how low we seat. I'm sorry, no matter how low we're seated Mordecai did not have power or influence with the king, but God was able to use him in such a powerful way because he used whatever position he was in to honor God and to allow God to use him. It was not Queen Esther's beauty that kept her safe from Haman's wrath. She relied on godly wisdom to position herself in such a way that her request was already answered with a yes before she even walked in the presence of her king positioning is everything although we'd consider you know the jewish people in this story the weakest and the most affected by everything their fasting and their praying was their position so I want to use this story to encourage the least of us. To those who literally have no power, influence, or connections. I want to remind you that you still have a position. And I believe that position is to stay connected to men and women who are doing the will of God. By putting their lives on the lines to make this world a better place for you and fast and pray on their behalf. Esther may have had influence, but she was just as much at risk as the other Jewish people that she was trying to fight for. So she needed all the people whom she represented to stand in the gap for her with fasting and with praying. So no matter how small you think your position is, your position does matter. And we do need to do our part. Now, although in some parts of the world, it feels like everything's back to normal. We're back working, you know, thinking happy thoughts, moving forward in love and light. And, you know, it can be easy to forget that As we go back to normal, our most vulnerable communities who's been devastated by these last catastrophes are still crying. They are still lamenting and doing their best to live through it. So a third lesson we learn from this story really speaks to people of power and people of influence, just like Queen Esther You know, God placed many of us in positions of power and influence to serve, not to be served, and to serve God's cause. When we look at the people who held the greatest influence, Queen Esther and Haman, we see that both their connection to the most powerful man was in conflict Haman used his influence with the king for his own selfish pleasure, and Queen Esther almost leaned towards using her influence to keep herself safe. But you know, thank God she was connected to Mordecai, who helped her stay connected to the people on the ground and connected to the will of God. If Mordecai hadn't reminded her that no matter how high she sat, she still had an obligation to represent God. And his people. Who knows how, you know, the story could have gone. And one of the last lessons we really need to be reminded of is the importance of living a righteous lifestyle and honoring God with it. I really believe that the reason why we're able to see Mordecai more prevalently than anyone else in this story is because... He was relentless in his commitment to God. So no matter how far removed he was from power and influence, God kept putting Mordecai in positions where those of influence and power kept favoring him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be in your presence We are grateful to have been seen by you, grateful to have been heard by you. Father, your word reminds us that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. So right now we want to lift up those who are the least among us. We know that life has moved on for many of us, but the cries and the destitution of others still remain. Some may not notice it, And sometimes others are guilty of ignoring it. But you will never close your eyes and plug your ears to the wailing and lamenting of the suffering of your people. Father, you are the only one who can give justice to the weak and the fatherless. You hold the power to maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. You are more than able to rescue the weak and the needy. So we ask that you remind them that their power comes from seeking your face, from fasting and praying on behalf of those who are fighting for them. And may we all be delivered from the hand of the wicked. Father, we also lift up every person that you've placed in position of influence and power. Father, remind them that you place them in those seats for times like these. Remind them that it's Just as important for them to remain connected to the people they represent and serve as it is to remain connected to positions of power. Father, as they move forward in your cause, give them strength to do your will and courage to do your will and wisdom to properly position themselves to be heard. Father, we know it's not easy being in those positions because many things fight for their attention all at once. So we ask that you bring peace to their minds, calm their anxious thoughts, surround them with your divine favor. Let the answer to their request be yes, even before they enter the room. And Father, I pray for every person who bears the name of Jesus to begin to walk in him. As your word declares, as he is, so are we in this world. Help us and teach us to clothe ourselves in the righteousness and in the blood of Jesus. Honoring you with our lives so that we can be more effective here on earth. Now unto you who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us. Unto you Father God be glory and honor in everyone who bears your name. And in the church by Christ Jesus through all ages without end a man. So I just want to remind you that I have not forgotten about the the lessons I learned from, you know, the discussion of the church and race hosted by Bishop T.D. Jakes. And you know, today's devotion regarding power and influence was actually one of the lessons they touched on, but I wish would have been more elaborated on. Now, this is not the last lesson I learned about Um, but after this episode I want to hold off on talking about the other lessons that I wish they would have discussed for a later time because I feel like I need to shift in another direction but I definitely will come back to this now anyone who who's you know used to tuning in to This podcast, know that I've made the decision to no longer assume that everyone who listens to this podcast has a relationship with Jesus Christ or who has already received salvation through Jesus Christ. So, for those who may be listening but are not followers of Jesus Christ and you're now ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. Your word teaches that in order to be saved, we must confess our sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive him as Lord and Savior. I may not fully understand or know all what the, all that this means, but I know that I'm ready to give my life and my heart to something bigger and greater than me. So I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead. I turn from my sins, and I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Help me to draw closer to you in every way. In Jesus' name, Amen. And if you want to listen to more prayer and devotions, they are available on the Make Me Good Ground YouTube channel and all other major podcasting platforms. You can also listen to listen to these podcasts on iTunes, Google, Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Stitcher entitled Praying the Word of God. If you know someone who will be encouraged by the podcast, simply share it. You can also follow me on Instagram at Praying the Word of God. And if you're someone who gave your life to Christ or dedicated your life to Jesus Christ, by praying the prayer of salvation with me, email me at prayingthewordofgod2020 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your story. Thank you, and take care. Hello, welcome to Praying the Word of God. My name is Tay, and I'm here to pray through the Word of God with you. Once again, I hope this message finds you well. I pray you're in good spirits and ready to sit with me in this moment to give a little time towards seeking God's face through devotion and prayer. So last week was a pretty extensive devotion and prayer, right? Because we walked through nearly the whole book of Esther to understand the importance of power, influence, and access. Now, these positions are vital to the church because God places us in such positions for two reasons. One is to advance his agenda and two, to protect those who are considered the least among us. But history has shown that when we fail to do this, it often breeds corruption and corrupt power always leads to the shedding of innocent blood, um, oppression on many levels, or in extreme cases, the annihilation of minority groups. For this reason, people in positions of power should always have someone close to them who can guide them towards and remind them of God's will, not towards their own ambitions or only towards those who are related to them or only to those who support them. Now, because not everyone who's in positions of power have a sense of godly governing and not everyone who's in positions of access have influence and not everyone who's in positions of influence have power, I want to use the next few episodes to further focus on each position One at a time so that we can give it the attention I think it deserves, you know, in hopes that we're better able to recognize the positions we as individuals are in. And then we can use those positions to genuinely glorify and honor God and, you know, be a defender to the weak. So today, let's look a little deeper at positions of power, Through the life of King Xerxes. When we go back to the book of Esther, who in this story holds the power? Who is it in this story that has the greatest capacity to alter the people's living conditions, good or bad? It's King Xerxes, right? Now, we can argue that Haman and Esther were in positions of power also, but they only had power to the extent the king allowed them to have. Haman and Esther could not do what the king did not permit them to do. So what Haman and Esther had was influence because although they didn't have the ability to move on their own authority, they did have the capacity to alter the king's state of mind by persuading him towards what mattered to them. For example, whenever Haman made a request to the king, it always entailed strengthening Haman's power and annihilating a group of people that Haman hated because, you know, that is what mattered to him. However, although Queen Esther's and Haman's influence is what often guided King Xerxes' final decision making, make no mistake about it, that King Xerxes was the keeper of power and ultimately was the one who withheld it and released it. Now, this is no surprise because people who are in positions of power are often surrounded by influential people who want their you know attention for many different reasons so people of uh, people who are in positions of power are often uh, around advisors they often have advisors that they consult with in order to maintain a checks and balances you know and avoid rash decision making and this is a good thing because proverbs 11 and 14 tells us that Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. When we go back to chapter one of Esther, we see that King Xerxes was furious because his first wife, Queen Vashti, would not go to him when she was summoned. So to avoid making a rash decision... The king sought out his advisors on the best way to respond to the matter. And, you know, for this reason, we can actually say advisors are also very influential people because anyone who's an advisor of any sort, whether it be a pastor, a mentor, a counselor, a teacher, is almost always expected to know and have the best course of action that we as a community or a nation or an individual should take, right? And I think we almost always deem them as the experts in morals and ethics and even law. Now, I think it's just as important for people in positions of power to be willing to listen to the advice being given. Because Proverbs 12 and 15 says that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So what good is godly advice if we're not willing to listen to it? If we continue to study the book of Esther, we see that victory for the Jews wasn't just because of one woman's willingness to speak to the king. Queen Esther did her job by addressing the issue to the king, but the king had to be willing to listen and hear her out. In fact, I believe that this whole story is about people working together, operating within their positions to accomplish salvation for a group of people who could not otherwise obtain it for themselves. So when people get in these positions of power, especially godly people, it's very important to understand and remember why you've been placed there in the first place. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says that people should adhere to the leadership that's been set up in this world because people in such positions have been sent by God for, listen to this, Number one, the punishment of evildoers. And number two, for the praise of those who do good, which ties into advancing God's agenda and protecting those who are considered the least among us. But what happens when people in such superior positions choose not to honor God through their leadership? Where is God? When there is abuse of power. Because unfortunately, this does happen. And it has been an issue since the fall of man. And if I'm honest, it's happening quite frequently these days. Whether we choose to talk about this or not, we can study the Holy Scriptures. And when we study the Word of God we see that God has always had something to say about leaders who fail to use their positions of power for the greater good. He takes it personally and he deals with them personally. In fact, God considers any person in leadership who abuses their power an enemy to him. I know this is tough for some people to hear, you know, I don't know, maybe especially if you're a leader, because I think the role of a leader is very is a very heavy one, because you know with great power comes great responsibility, not only that, but you know, I think it would be remiss of us as the body of Christ to only place an emphasis on a person's duty to follow while diminishing the duty leaders have in taking care of their people. So let's jump over to Ezekiel 34 to see what it looks like when people of power, i.e. leaders, refuse to use their positions for what God intended. So in Ezekiel 34, we see God commanding Ezekiel to prophesy against the leaders of Israel. At that time, um, the leaders were, you know, the power source for the nation and they were directed by God to do so. However, a judgment was made against them because they had not done what was right by the people they were called to lead. So God told Ezekiel to prophesy against the leaders of Israel And he said, Give them this message. And it reads What sorrow awaits you, shepherds, who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? You're using the position I put you in for your own selfish gain. Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, you wear the wool and butcher the best animals, but you let your flock starve. You see all the issues they're up against, but you ignore them while you fulfill your own needs and the needs of your friends. You've not taken care of the weak. You've not tended to the sick or bound up the injured. You've not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, You have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd. And they are easy prey for any wild animal. Because of the way you've treated them and the way you've governed them, my people have fallen subject to all kinds of disparities. They have wandered through all mountains and all the hills across the face of the earth. Yet no one has gone to search for them. You're not even trying to figure out why they're lost. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you abandoned my flock and left them to be attacked by every wild animal. And though you were my shepherds, you were supposed to represent my will on earth, not yours. You didn't search for my sheep when they were lost. You took care of yourselves and left the sheep to starve. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Since you won't listen to anyone else, since you won't take any of the wise counsel I brought to you, I now consider these shepherds, these leaders who I placed over my people and made my people subject to, I have made them my enemies and I will hold them responsible for what has been happening to my flock. They are personally responsible for my people falling away, being subject to oppressions, confusions, divisions, and the like. I will take away their right to feed the flock. I will cause my sheep to not even want to receive from you. From you. They won't want to hear you. They won't want to listen to you, and they will not take your words as truth. And I will stop them from feeding themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. I'm coming to get my people from the leadership that you perverted. The sheep will no longer be their prey. Now, I've placed... uh, a few emphasis on it um but in this prophecy we learn that God gave his leaders the right to rule and govern over his people this was a privilege and it placed the leaders at an advantage but we also see that when these powers are abused God will eventually take them away And, you know, we need to talk about this because people in any leadership capacity need to be warned about the dangers of mishandling anything or anyone God has given them. And for this reason, I want to focus today's prayers on people in leadership. Although being a leader and being a person in a powerful Position often yields great advantages. God places a huge burden on the leader to do right by the office they're appointed to. And this should always be at the forefront of every leader's mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you to lift up every leader that's currently placed here on this earth your word tells us that any authority that exists is established and given by you for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right and those who are governed by them are to adhere to them father we pray that those in any leadership capacity Begin to understand the weight of their calling and the burden of their responsibilities. To advance your agenda and to protect those who are considered the least among them. Please, position godly advisors around every leader. People who know your will and even uphold them to the same standard and hold themselves to the same standard give them advisors who's willing to speak the truth in love and stand for what's right even if they have to stand by themselves we pray that the leaders of this world surround themselves around these kinds of advisors not the kind of advisors who are only yes men or advisors who seek their own personal advantages but people who have godly wisdom and good intentions towards leadership and the people they're called to serve. Father, we ask that you remind our leaders that when a man's way please you, O Lord, you make even his enemies be at peace with him. We pray that our leaders open their hearts to receive your truth. For every leader that is walking in the error of your way, we pray that they heed your warnings. We ask that you remind every leader, especially those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, that with great power comes great responsibility. And that they have a duty to use their positions for the greater good and for the people whom they lead. And if they fail to uphold their positions in this manner, remind them that their downfall awaits. And that they have a personal issue with you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Anyone who normally tunes into this podcast know that I've made a decision to no longer assume that everyone who listens to this podcast has a relationship with Jesus Christ or has already received salvation through Jesus Christ. So for those who may be listening but are not followers of Jesus Christ and you're now ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Or you're like a prodigal son. You used to consider yourself a follower of Christ, but, you know, you've fallen away from the truth and simply ready to come back home. Please pray this with me. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. Your word teaches that in order to be saved, we must confess our sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as our Lord and Savior. I may not fully know or understand what all of this means, but I know that I'm ready to give my life and my heart to something bigger and greater than me. For this reason, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead. I turn from my sins, and I invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and my Savior. Help me to draw closer to you in every way while I'm on this journey called life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to listen to more prayers and devotions, they are available on the Make Me Good Ground YouTube channel and all major podcasting platforms. You can also listen on iTunes, Google, Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Cast, Radio Public, and Stitcher entitled Praying the Word of God. If you know someone who will be encouraged by these podcasts, simply share it. You can also follow me on Instagram at praying the word of God. And if you're someone who gave your life to Christ and rededicated your life to Jesus Christ by praying the prayer of salvation with me today, email me at praying the word of God, 2020 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your story. Thank you and take care.